Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Aristotelian Society. Uh, I'm sorry for the short delay. We were getting this um, splendid lectern introduced into the room, which I think it should stay here now as a feature. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome James Studd this week. James is a lecturer in Oxford and a fellow of um, Lady Margaret Hall. He, he is going to talk to us tonight about generality, extensibility, and paradox. James, welcome. Thank you. Um, it's, it's a great pleasure to speak to this society. Uh, and I'm going to talk on the topic, as I've called it, generality, extensibility, and, and paradox. So I'm just going to start by saying some fairly introductory things about absolute generality, which is the overarching topic this talk is located in. So I, I thought I'd start with a, a mildly controversial example. Um, suppose I say almost no one voted for Brexit. I imagine some of you will have taken me to have said a false thing. You know, after all, 52%, 17.4 million or so people did vote for Brexit. Um, so you might have taken me to say something false. On the other hand, I suppose millions of people voted against Brexit. And what about the billions of people who aren't eligible to vote in the UK? And think about the future generations of people. I'm assuming here that there are going to be uh, future generations, but there, you know, the countless trillions and trillions of future generations, not one of them voted for Brexit. So in the grand scheme of things, you might think, that, well, maybe maybe that sentence is, after all, true. Okay, perhaps that's, you know, set the politics aside. What I'm, what I'm driving at here is a fairly familiar phenomenon, that of quantifier domain restriction. So whether or not one is true or false depends on how general I'm being, what the domain of my quantifier no one might be. So if I quantify only over eligible voters in the UK, it seems one is false. If I quantify over all of the inhabitants of the world, perhaps including present and future generations, perhaps then one is true. Okay, quantifiers are often restricted. They range only over a limited domain. Further question, are there also absolutely general quantifiers? Is there a domain which is somehow maximal and inexpandable in some interesting sense? So that's the, the overarching question in the background, and there's two views you might take. The character I'm calling the absolutist <clears throat> takes the view that there are absolutely general quantifiers. Some domain really does comprise absolutely everything. The relativist says no, no absolutely general quantifiers. So there's no domain, according to relativist, which in some interesting sense is absolutely comprehensive. And I just want to flag before I move on that it's actually been pretty hard to pin down exactly what the dispute between these two is. So these two formulations should be taken just as first pass initial glosses. 
Okay, so that's generality. Let, let me now say something about extensibility and paradox. So Michael Dummett is a, a famous opponent of absolutism. And he famously, perhaps notoriously says things along the lines of, well, the prime lesson of the set theoretic paradoxes is that absolutism fails. I.e. there's no classical quantification over absolutely everything for Dummett. And I, I flag classical here because Dummett has slightly nuanced views about absolutely everything, and for him it's going to make a difference whether we're working classically or in a more intuitionist setting. But henceforth, I'm only going to be talking about classical quantification, quantification subject to the ordinary classical semantics. And in that sense, Dummett thinks you can't have it over absolutely everything. Why not? Well, it's bound up with what he calls indefinite extensibility and the existence of concepts that he takes to be indefinitely extensible. So what's an indefinitely extensible co concept? Dummett says, well, it's one such that if we can form a definite conception of a totality, all of whose members fall under that concept, we can, by reference to the totality, characterize a larger totality, all of whose members fall under the concept once more. So I take it a paradigmatic example of a supposedly indefinitely extensible concept is the concept of set. And you'll, you'll do fairly well in this talk if you just think of a set as an arbitrary collection. So suppose we're given a, a domain or a definite totality of sets. We seem to be able to specify a larger domain or a larger totality of sets. And we can do this using an argument which Zamello presents in the context of set theory. So suppose you're given a domain D. The set you need to think about is the set I'm going to call R, which comprises the members of D that lack themselves as elements. Now, what Zamello shows is if you then suppose R is a member of D, you can run a version of Russell's paradox. Now, this isn't Russell's paradox proper. Rather, what we're doing is we're using an argument similar to Russell's paradox to show that the assumption that R belongs to the original domain D fails. So I'm going to call this the Russell reductio. And it seems to be an argument that this further set R is not a member of the domain we started with. And one striking thing about this argument is it doesn't rely on really any assumptions about the domain we started with. So it doesn't matter how wide the domain is, but it also doesn't matter what the character of that domain is. So Zamello, of course, was working in set theory, so his domain was a, a set domain, but the argument doesn't in any way, important way, turn on D being a, a set domain here. And I should say that this phenomenon indefinitely extensible concepts, isn't in any way restricted just to sets. There are lots of further examples, so ordinal, interpretation, property, all of these seem to be indefinitely extensible. 
And for Dummett's case against absolutism, the example that matters most, perhaps, is the concept thing. So that might seem to be a concept which is absolutely comprehensive. Everything is, in the relevant sense, a thing. But if thing, if, as Dummett would claim, is indefinitely extensible, no definite totality comprises absolutely everything. We can always come to a a wider domain, no matter how wide our initial domain would be. Well, this position is quite firmly opposed by absolutists like Cartwright and George Boulos. And in particular, the idea that absolutism involves some kind of logical or mathematical mistake, that was something that Cartwright came out against very strongly. So the orthodox absolutist, as I'm going to call him, just doesn't buy the idea that either the concept set or the concept thing is indefinitely extensible. So according to orthodox absolutism, you can quantify quite happily over absolutely every set, and indeed that's exactly what the quantifier every set does, in the right context, perhaps. And the same goes for everything. There's no difficulty in this view quantifying over absolutely everything. And the straightforward response to the argument from Russell's paradox is simply to deny that there is the relevant set. And after all, I suppose, when D is a domain which is absolutely comprehensive, the relevant set R is just going to be the set of all non-self-membered items full stop. And you might think, well, if anything is the, the lesson of Russell's paradox, it's that there's no set comprising all of the non-self-membered items. Indeed, as, as Cartwright emphasizes, that's just a logical truth that there's no such set. Well, I suppose if we deny there's such a, such a set, we're left with the, the task of clearing up afterwards. We might want to say something about which sets there are and which sets there aren't. But perhaps to do that, we can just look to our best theories of sets. So a few times in this talk, I, I'm going to occasionally refer to uh, a standard set theory. So it's a zavello frankel set theory with choice and your elements, so ZFCU. And very often, set theorists tend to ignore the your elements. All the, all the your element is is just an item which is not a set. And set theorists very often just focus on uh, theories only quantifying over sets. But for our purposes, if we want to allow for applications outside pure mathematics, or indeed if we want a theory which has even a prima facie claim to achieving absolute generality, we need to talk about non-sets, your elements, as well as sets. So that's where the U's come from. So this is just standard set theory allowing for non-sets. So what I want to argue for today uh, is that the choice between these two views, the choice between absolutism and relativism, takes us to a trade-off. So the price you pay for being a relativist is fairly obvious. You limit the range of our quantifiers. 
And so suppose we take a, a theorem of set theory. Everything is the sole element of its singleton set. That's the sort of claim you might think which really cries out for absolute generality. If we take the set theorist who says that to quantify only over a limited domain, it seems that that utterance falls short of the generality the set theorist was striving for. Quantifying over a limited domain, it just fails to rule out there being some items which lack singleton sets, albeit ones that the set theorist is not quantifying over. Well, the absolutist doesn't have that problem. They can say, well, the set theorist just quantifies over an absolutely comprehensive domain. The flip side of absolutism, the price you pay for absolutism, is that in attaining absolute generality, you have to curtail, as I'm going to put it, the collecting power of sets. So consider a fairly standard application of set theory. So one thing we might want to use sets for is to encode semantic values of expressions when we're doing the semantics of, say, a natural language. And so we might want to assign extensions, in particular, to some of our expressions in our language. So suppose we're interpreting this fragment of English over a domain D, then we might take the extension of donkey to be the set of items in D which are donkeys, and we might take the extension of the the English predicate set to be the members of D which are sets, and then the extension of identical could be the members or pairs of members of D uh, where the two, or rather the one item is identical. Now the trouble is, is if you're an absolutist and you think the domain is absolutely comprehensive, then not all of these extensions are available as set extensions. In particular, there's just not going to be any set comprising the members of D which are sets in the case when D is absolutely comprehensive. So the items we wanted to put into that extension are, so to speak, uncollectible. They can't be, if you're an absolutist, collected together into a single set extension. And I I should just say that I'm occasionally going to speak in this slightly colourful way of items being collected. But I I want to disavow any suggestion that this has got anything to do with my or or your physical capacities of aggregation or our abilities to kind of mentally lasso items. When I say that some items are collected, all I mean is that there is a set and it has those items as their elements. Okay, so here's the trade-off I'm trying to reach. I want to claim that absolutism does well on generality, but the price they pay is having uncollectible pluralities of sets. Whereas the relativist, what they gain by giving up on absolute generality is allowing allowing themselves to be liberal about collectability. So they can maintain, on the contrary, that any plurality of sets is collectible. And so when the relativist is doing semantics, she can always encode the semantic values as, if she wants to, set extensions, provided she works in a meta-language whose domain is sufficiently liberal. Well, I'm not going to... I should stress... Oh, before I come to that, actually. I suppose there's, there's things both sides might do 
to make up for their loss. So the relativist gives up absolutely general quantification, but maybe they can make do with some other non-quantificational means of achieving absolute generality. So relativists sometimes appeal to schematic generality, or relativists sometimes appeal to modal operators. And something similar can be done by the absolutist. The absolutist loses set-based collectability, but perhaps there are surrogates that he might appeal to. So often absolutists in this connection appeal to plural resources, or they might appeal to higher order resources. So I suppose there's, there's a trade-off to be had there. You know, how bad is either way to go? How well do the surrogates uh, make up for what they've lost? But I should say that today I'm, I'm not going to try and settle that trade-off. My aim today is to try and reach that trade-off. And so my main target, if you will, is a heterodox absolutist response to the paradoxes. And this, what I'm going to call third-way absolutism, on the face of it, does well on both counts. So on the face of it, it allows absolutely general quantifiers. It also allows that there are no uncollectible pluralities of sets. Well, I'm not going to come to that view until the fourth section of this talk. So before we get there, there's some preliminary work to be done. And essentially, I think a lot of absolutists are just sceptical of the idea that there's any case to answer at all. And there's some long-standing doubts about the coherence of the case for relativism from indefinite extensibility and also the coherence of relativism itself. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and bring out some of those worries about coherence in the next two sections. And then in, in the last section of this talk, I'll return to this third way view, which looks initially appealing. And I'm going to come out against that third way view. So it turns out that when we look at that third way view more closely, this view, which initially seems to do well on both generality and collectability doesn't do all that well on either. So I wanted to examine an argument of Michael Dummett's. And so we might ask ourselves, well, what lies behind indefinite extensibility? And relativists are often not all that forthcoming about the plenitude principles they take to drive the Russell reductio. But Dummett, to his credit, does give us a fairly specific plenitude principle. So he uh, argues against absolutism on the basis of this premise. So he says, if there is a definite totality over which the variable x ranges, then of course there will be some definite subset of objects of that totality that satisfy the predicate f, where f is just any predicate which is well-defined on, on the totality. So this may seem a little reminiscent of a separation principle for um, sets, and so I'm going to call this premise domain separation. If we help ourselves to domain separation, it's clear enough how to argue in the style of 
the Russell reductio following Zermelo to obtain the conclusion that there's no comprehensive domain in the sense that no determinate totality we might quantify over comprises everything. So all we need to do is use domain separation to give us the relevant Russell-type set, and then the Russell reductio will go to show that it won't be in the domain we started with. Well, what should we, or rather, what should the absolutist make of Dummett's argument there? And to answer that question is going to call for me to touch on a somewhat vexed question, namely the question of what Dummett means when he talks about determinate totalities. I, I should stress, though, that really my primary aim in this section isn't exegetic. I, I'm not going to try and give anything like a comprehensive overview of all of the nuances of Dummett's views about generality. Really, I just want to draw out some of the difficulties in trying to make a compelling case for relativism based on the paradoxes using Dummett's argument as, as an example. Well, what then does Dummett mean by definite totality? <coughs> Dummett's use of locutions like totality, his use of totality talk, leads George Boulos to a suspicion. And here's how Boulos articulates that suspicion. He says, Dummett knows perfectly well that there is no set containing all sets. Nevertheless, it would seem he does think that there has to be a what to call it totality, collection, domain. He would seem to believe that whenever there are some items under discussion being quantified over, there is a set-like item, a totality to which they all belong. So this suspicion is also held by Richard Cartwright, and he sees Dummett as assuming in some of his arguments what he refers to as the all-in-one principle, namely the principle that quantification presupposes a domain, but moreover a domain which is set-like. So either a set or at least a set-like collection is required if we're to quantify over certain items, there must be a set or set-like domain comprising them. That's what the all-in-one principle says, and that's uh, what Cartwright sometimes reads into Dummett. Well, let's go along, at least provisionally, with that suggestion. Suppose we do think that a, a determinate totality, in the simplest case, is simply a set. What should we make of Dummett's argument on that understanding of determinate totality? Well, in this case, his premise emerges as a more familiar separation principle. Now it's much more like the, the axiom that shows up in Zamello's set theory. So now Dummett's premise tells us that whenever we've got some set which is serving as the domain, we can always, for any predicate we like, come up with the subset of members of the domain which satisfy the predicate. And if you have that principle, it's clear enough how to argue to show that there's no set domain which contains everything i.e. there's no universal set. Well, I think taken this way, absolutists aren't going to be terribly worried about the, the Median argument. And the reason is, is quite straightforward. They're, they're just happy, the absolutists, to say, well, look, yeah, 
fine, there's, there's no set containing everything. But why should we think that we need a set containing everything in order to quantify over absolutely everything? So the absolutists like Cartwright and Boulos, they're going to be very happy to reject this all in one principle. And seemingly with good reason. You know, if, if I want to quantify over the people in this room, say, perhaps that requires each of you, but it's not clear it requires a further item, namely a set domain containing all of you. <clears throat> and if I want to quantify over absolutely everything, Cartwright might argue, well, that doesn't call for a set domain comprising absolutely everything. It just requires the items themselves. I suppose this lives, leaves us with a mild residual issue, which is probably best to address before we go any further, namely, if we as absolutists, or more generally, if we reject the all-in-one principle, what are we to make of domain talk? In particular, what are we make, to make of the absolutist thesis that some domain is absolutely comprehensive? And Cartwright has a straightforward way to make sense of this talk. We shouldn't take it as face value talk about set-like collections. Rather, we can treat domain talk as loose talk, talk which we're going to take as elliptical for a plural paraphrase. So when I say loosely some domain is absolutely comprehensive, Cartwright's going to say, well, that's elliptical for some zero or more items severally, those items comprise everything. So I suppose a couple of notes about this way of understanding domain talk. So if we're going to help ourselves to plurals in order to paraphrase set-like domains out of domain talk, we'd better not take the Quinean view that plural quantifiers are bad notation for quantification over set-like items. So we'd better be anti-Quinians about plurals if we want to use uh, a plural paraphrase to avoid making the all-in-one assumption. A second remark is simply that these plural locutions quickly become pretty cumbersome. So occasionally I'm going to slip back into loose talk and I'm going to speak of domains and indeed I'm also going to speak of pluralities from time to time. And please don't take a, a plurality to be a set-like collection. This is just my way of inviting you to, to do a quick plural paraphrase of what I'm trying to say. Well, on its first regimentation, Dummett's argument isn't really any serious threat to absolutism. But actually, Dummett doesn't think very much of this interpretation of his argument. And, and actually, in the proceedings of this society some time ago, Dummett responds to Boulos, and he makes a point of avoiding talk of totalities or domains in a way that might suggest that he thinks you need a, a set-like one in order to quantify. And you know, he says, well, I've avoided any nouns such as domain, lest George Boulos should acclaim, exclaim triumphantly, what did I tell you? Or what do you call it? Nothing, he says, nothing hangs on the use of such locutions. And actually, Dummett's 
But when you read his paper, Dummett's way of avoiding domain talk and totality talk is very similar to Cartwright's way of avoiding domain talk and totality talk. Namely, Dummett helps himself to plural locutions. So I suppose this suggests a, a second way we might understand Dummett's talk of determinate totalities. Maybe, to put the proposal loosely, a determinate totality is a kind of plurality. And, of course, when I say plurality, I, I'm trying to get you to paraphrase what I say using plural terms. So if we, if we try and do that with Dummett's premise, this separation principle, and we give a, a plural paraphrase of his use of determinate totality, uh, what we get is a different premise, namely that if we have a predicate phi and there are some zero or more things that we're quantifying over, then there's a set of those items amongst the zero or more things that we're quantifying over which satisfy the predicate phi. So we've got a separation principle on determinate totalities, only now determinate totality is being paraphrased away using plural resources. And if we formulate it that way, we run a, a plural version of the Russellian argument. So we're helping ourselves in our logic to plural analogues of the usual axioms and rules for quantifiers. The conclusion we come to is that there's no comprehensive plurality-encoded domain. And what I mean by that less loosely is that no zero or more things comprise everything. So that's certainly a, a conclusion that I think the absolutists should be afraid of. The trouble this time, however, is with Dummett's premise. <coughs> so standardly, plural logic, in, in addition to analogues of the usual rules for quantifiers, adds a number of truistic-seeming axioms which give us some comprehension for these plurals. So in particular, given a, a predicate phi, plural logic often adds as an axiom the axiom that zero or more things comprise the items that satisfy phi. Well, that sounds to me like a, a truism. Of course, if you're given a predicate phi, zero or more things are the satisfiers of that predicate. Um, but if we have plural logic with that comprehension axiom, we can just establish outright as a, as a theorem of the logic that some zero or more things do comprise everything, or loosely some plurality-encoded domain is comprehensive. And so is it, is it really so clear then with Dummett's argument that the prime lesson of the paradoxes is the failure of absolutism? If we follow this second regimentation, take determinate totalities to be, so to speak, pluralities, <laughs> paraphrase his argument plurally, then it turns out his premise is just straightforwardly inconsistent in plural logic. After all, he, with, from that premise, establishes the negation of comprehensive plurality domain, and that's just a theorem of plural logic. On the other hand, if we think determinate totalities are sets or set-like items, the conclusion of his argument, this idea that there's no set-like domain comprising everything, 
is simply a, a conclusion that the absolutist is going to shrug off as nonetheless compatible with quantifying over everything there is. So I'm going to spend the next um, and third part of this talk trying to present a, a more effective argument, still from indefinite extensibility, but a more effective argument for relativism from the paradoxes. And then we'll, we'll return in the final section to this third wave view I mentioned in, in the first section. Well, I, I suppose you may think that on the dialectical terms I've accepted so far, the prospects for relativism may seem just hopeless. And I've already conceded that as a truth of plural logic, there are some zero or more things that comprise everything. So what room is there for relativism if I'm happy to accept that as true? Well, I want to question the idea that this thesis, this idea that some plurality-encoded domain is comprehensive, really captures an interesting absolutist that some domain is furthermore absolutely comprehensive. So I think there's significant room for doubt that this thesis really captures the view absolutists ought to be defending. So to bring that point out, I, I want to idealize a little bit. And so I'm going to focus just on a very simple language. But all of the points I, I'm making here would go through perfectly well for a more complex language as well. So let's focus on, on the language that we might use to formulate set theory. Uh, and it's going to be a, a plural language. So first of all, we're going to have quantifiers like everything and something, and we'll take them to range over a domain M. We're also going to help ourselves to plural quantifiers. And as you'll have noticed already, I've been using this zero or more reading of my plural quantifiers. And those plural quantifiers are just going to quantify plurally over that same domain. And I'm assuming that plural quantification is full in the sense that we're really quantifying over any zero or more items of M. Okay, additionally to these unrestricted quantifiers, our language has set quantification. So locutions like every set and some set in the formalism, I'm going to distinguish the set quantifiers from the ordinary quantifiers by using variables like S and T. Uh, and the set quantifiers are going to range over a domain S. In addition to single quantifiers for sets, we've got plural quantifiers for sets. And I should mention that in, in the formal language, when I want to distinguish plural quantification from singular quantification, I'm going to use repeated variables. So for all X is the singular quantifier, for all XX the plural one. And then last of all, we're going to have a predicate which allows us to express that one item is a, a member of a set. And I suppose in the background, you know, the, the ordinary things you have in a language, connectives, identity, and so on. Uh, and last of all, a, a predicate which allows us to say that a single item is a member of a plurality, or, or more carefully, one item is, is one of some one or more things. Okay, so to return to the, the question I was after, namely, does 
this thesis, comprehensive plurality domain, really capture absolutism? The point to be made is this. You know, the language of set theory can be interpreted by providing a domain M for the quantifiers, singular and plural, to range over a domain S for set quantifiers to range over, and an extension E for the element set predicate for membership. Comprehensive domain, that thesis comes out true no matter how wide or narrow M is. So it doesn't matter how non-comprehensive our domain may be, the language which quantifies over that domain still renders true the thesis which was a candidate for stating absolutism. So I want to, at this stage, bring in uh, the competing picture of the, the hierarchy of sets that the relativist might go in for. So it's a striking fact about standard set theory that even when we help ourselves to plural resources that allow for a finite axiomatization, and even when we assume that the semantics of plurals are re relevantly full, it still doesn't allow us to pin down the intended model of the theory up to isomorphism. So going back to Zamello, the theory still ends up merely quasi-categorical. So it allows of more and more liberal models. So we have a, a familiar picture which I've att attempted to draw. So we, we start off with um, the non-sets. So these are the U elements right at the bottom of the hierarchy. And then once we've got the non-sets, we can add on top of them sets. So we start making sets of your elements and then sets of sets of your elements. And provided we add enough further ranks of sets on top of the elements we started with, we get a model of standard set theory. But what Zamello shows is we can get another model of standard set theory if we then add enough sets on top of the first one. And there's no, so far as the axioms of set theory are concerned, no limit to how high we can keep on going. And so this is, you know, very naturally a relativist picture. The relativists might say, well, you can start off with a domain M0, but then you can expand it, come to a wider domain M1. But I suppose, what are we going to do if we're a relativist and we quantify over M0, but now we want to express what we take to be a fact, namely that M0 fails to be absolutely comprehensive? Well, what it won't do to say, if we want to deny that, is to utter the negation of comprehensive domain with the quantifiers ranging over M0. Because, of course, that negation, no comprehensive plurality domain, is trivially false, whatever the range of the quantifiers. So if we want to, speaking this language quantifying over M0, deny the fact that M0 contains everything, we need a more liberal language. We need to be able to quantify over things outside that domain, which can be witnesses to its failure to be absolutely comprehensive. Well, what the relativists might try and do then is first of all shift to this more liberal language to start quantifying over M1 rather than M0. And then the relativist can deny without saying something trivially false, then the relativist can deny the comprehensiveness of the initial domain, M0, with which he started.
So I want to move now towards a regimentation of the argument from indefinite extensibility, which somehow takes account of this attempted shift by relativists. So we start off, let's suppose, speaking a language interpreted over a domain M0. Let's call that the initial domain. And let's suppose further that the absolutist is happy to put their money on that one. That's the domain which the absolutist claims is really absolutely comprehensive. The relativist then attempts to shift to a, a wider domain, M1, and then speaking the new language, the relativist is going to try and argue that the old domain wasn't absolutely comprehensive after all. So we just need a, a tiny bit of machinery to keep track of the shift. So what we can do is we can go back to our, our language of set theory and we can just add indices to indicate whether we're talking about the old domain or the new one. So when I talk about every thing zero or some zero or more things, I'm quantifying over M zero. And it gets a little tiresome to keep on talking about things zero and, and things I. So I'm often just going to call things zero old things. So the old things are the things in, in M zero. There are also old sets, which are the sets in S0, the extension of the, the set predicate. Uh, and also old element relations hold between some of those items. Uh, but we also want a way of talking about the new domain. And for that, I'm going to use the subscript 1. Um, so I should say that I'm not going to, to avoid adding too many indices everywhere, I'm going to leave the logical predicates unsorted. Uh, so we've got the, the portion of the language which talks about the old interpretation, and we're using zero subscripts for that part. If we want to talk about the new interpretation, we can use one subscripts. So I'll speak of new things and, and new sets and new elements. I suppose if we want to reason in this language, we're going to need a logic as well. Importantly, this, this logic had better not prejudge whether or not the relativist succeeds in coming to a bigger domain. So we want the logic to be neutral on the question of whether the absolutist or the relativist is, is right. But it's going to be convenient to suppose that the relativist's attempt to make the domain bigger doesn't backfire and make it smaller. So I'm going to assume that the, the new domain is no less inclusive than the old one. But that's perfectly compatible with what the absolutist claims, namely that there's just no change at all. Okay, so our, our logic just sorts plural logic in, in a, a fairly straightforward and, and natural way. So we sort the quantifier rules. We then have plural comprehension. Importantly, the, the predicate phi, I'm going to allow whatever indices you like in phi. And then we, we require also one axiom which isn't a, an analogue of any axiom in the unsorted theory. Uh, namely, what strikes me is, is another fairly heuristic one, the idea that whenever you have a new item which is one of zero or more old items, it is therefore an old item. Okay, so, so that was my, my, my slide of stage setting. I, I should say that I don't think you have to worry too much about the finer technical points here in order to appreciate the, the
the basic argument, which is this. So I'm going to set up the argument as an inconsistent triad. And I'm going to show that a thesis that the absolutist ought to hold on to if, if he retains his nerve is inconsistent with two relativist theses. So we've started off at M0. The relativist has then done whatever it takes, according to her, to make the domain bigger. The absolutist, if he continues to hold on to the idea that M0 is absolutely comprehensive, ought to say that there are some zero or more old things, some plurality-encoded domain in the old language, which is comprehensive not just in the trivial sense that all domains are comprehensive, but moreover in the wider sense that we can now express, or potentially wider sense, that we can now express quantifying over M1. So the absolutist should maintain that zero or more old items comprise, therefore, every new item. That thesis is incompatible with two assumptions the relativist might naturally make. So the first gives voice to the relativist's liberal attitude towards collectability. And it's the thesis that any plurality of old sets is collected as a new set in the new domain. <coughs> so for any zero or more old sets, there's some new set which has them as members. The second assumption the relativist can appeal to involves your elements. So remember that a, a your element is just a non-set and an old your element is just an old item which is not an old set and a, a new your element is just a new item uh, which is not a new set. And the, the third assumption in our inconsistent triad is the thought that old your elements stay as new your elements. So when you can helpfully think of this as a, a further assumption about how the relativist is expanding the initial domain. So the relativist moves from M0 to M1 by collecting together old sets or, or whatever it is she does. Your elements remain your elements, says that in doing so, she never turns an old your element into a set. So if you start off with a domain and Bertrand Russell is your element, you can't make him a set in the new interpretation by just stipulating, okay, Russell is now a set. If he was your element to start with, this uh, thesis says that he's got to be your element in the wider interpretation or the potentially wider interpretation as well. All right, so taken together in the, the plural logic I, I sketched in the previous slide, these three are inconsistent. On the other hand, they're pairwise consistent in that logic. So I suppose that gives us three options. And the first two bring us back to this trade-off I've been trying to get to. So the relativist is characteristically going to say, no, no, look, the, the new domain is bigger, which goes to show that comprehensive domain, once we formulated it in this non-trivial way, fails. And the picture that emerges is the one I showed you uh, a moment ago, namely where the set theoretic hierarchy emerges according to this Zemelian view where we have wider and wider models of that hierarchy. On the other hand, the absolutist is going to say, well, what we should give up 
is this liberal thesis about collecting sets. So you can't just assume that any old sets will be collected together as a new set. And the picture they might have of a hierarchy is just of a single hierarchy. They won't be able to encode it as a set, but just a single maximal hierarchy for the language of set theory to be interpreted over. And well, if I, if I can get to this stage, I'll, I'll be happy enough because this takes us back to the trade-off between generality and collectability that I was talking about at the beginning. The price the relativist pays is to give up on M zeros being absolutely comprehensive. She gives up on generality. The price the absolutist pays is to give up on the liberal attitude towards collectability. The absolutist is saddled with there being some pluralities of old sets which are not collected together as a set. So I'm, I'm finally going to come back now and talk about that third way view that I mentioned in the first section. The third option is to keep comprehensive domain and also to keep this second thesis, which I'm calling sets get collected, and instead to reject the third thesis in the triad, namely the thesis that your elements remain uh, your elements. And if you do this, the, the picture that emerges is that you have the set predicate being given more and more liberal extensions, but these more and more liberal extensions for the set predicate all falling within the absolutely comprehensive domain. So we've now got something like an absolutist friendly version of Zamello's hierarchy of wider and wider models, the set predicate keeps expanding, but the domain of quantifiers remains fixed. And I think there's some indications in the literature that this is a view that some absolutists have started to think might be an appealing way to respond to the argument from the paradoxes or to relativist use of indefinite extensibility. So back um, some almost 20 years ago, Williamson floated an idea of this nature um, in a paper entitled Indefinite Extensibility. Now, that paper was primarily about truth, but right towards the end, he considers something which may well be a third-way version of absolutism, and he tells us, well, given any reasonable assignment of meaning to the word set, we can, we can assign a more inclusive meaning while feeling that we are going on the same way. And he suggests this might be a way to capture the intuitions that are driving arguments from indefinite extensibility, like the one Dummett gives us, but crucially, without giving up on absolutism. More recently, Gabriel Escaiano has floated what might look like a, a third-way view, and he, he goes through a model of indefinite extensibility which he, he describes as a linguistic model of indefinite extensibility. And again, the idea is that we keep reinterpreting the set predicate with more and more liberal extensions, but these more and more liberal extensions fall within a fixed, maximal, unchanging, absolutely comprehensive domain. Well, might this be a way for the absolutists to, to avoid trading off 
generality against collectability. So is this a way to do well on both counts? And I suppose prima facie, you might think that the answer to that question is yes. After all, we've kept comprehensive domain. So we can quantify on this view over absolutely everything. We've also kept sets get collected. So according to this view, any plurality of sets is collectible. So on the face of it, then, you know, we've done well on generality, we've done well on collectability. I'm going to try and spend the last three slides arguing that that appearance is deceptive, and actually this view has difficulties both concerning generality and concerning collectability. And I suppose the issue concerning generality is, isn't too far below the surface, namely, the third way version of absolutism does well on unrestricted quantifiers because there's an absolutely comprehensive domain for them to range over. But what about restricted quantifiers? Quantifiers like every set. Well, those quantifiers have an important role to play when we try and formulate our, our, a set theory which is completely general because we might want to say, for example, that every set has a power set. And when we do that, we use a restricted quantifier to quantify over every set. Now, if you're a, a third-way absolutist, you don't think there's a maximal domain comprising absolutely every set and nothing else. So every set must instead range over some domain of initial sets. But if we're a third-way absolutist, we think we can collect those initial sets together as new sets and come to a, a strictly wider domain of new sets. And so for all power set, for all the power set axiom might say, quantifying over old sets, it simply fails to rule out power setless new sets. So it seems that we're not getting the generality we want on the third wave view for these restricted quantifiers. And is it so clear that this is an improvement on the relativists predicament when it comes to trying to articulate these theories that seem to cry out for absolute generality. You know, it seems to me that quantification over absolutely every set is, at least prima facie, called for by set theory just as much as quantification over absolutely everything. So that's a worry about generality. I also want to raise a, a worry to do with collectability. So, so far, I've been focusing purely on the question of which pluralities of sets are collectible. And a characteristic part of the third way view is it can be liberal in its answer to that question and can say, well, listen, any plurality of old sets will always get collected as a, a new one. What about pluralities of your elements? What about pluralities of non-sets or pluralities which contain both your elements and sets? Standard set theory already tells us a fair amount about, so to speak, which pluralities get collected. So suppose we're, we're working in, in set theory and I've, I've introduced a, a subscript I just to indicate that we're talking about objects I, so that's just a notational variant on, on, on ordinary set theory. Um, and 
what ordinary set theory tells us quite a lot about what gets collected, it, it, to begin with, it tells us that if you have a plurality of items which are set many in number, i.e. in 1-1 one, one correspondence with the elements of a set, then that plurality are also themselves the members of a set. That plurality gets collected. A fortiori, then, it says that any countably many items are the elements of a set. And for fixed finite n, any n many items of the elements of a set. And down at the bottom, any plurality of at most two items are collected by a unique set. And so a question arises, well, this is what standard set theory says about collectability. Um, and indeed, we're not going to need all of standard set theory to prove some of the weaker of these collectedness theses. So if we only want to show that a plurality of at most two objects always gets collected as a unique set, we're only going to need a few of the axioms. So in particular, the, the axioms of extensionality, empty set, and pairing will be enough to establish that. So suppose we're a third-way absolutist. Which of these collectability theses can we endorse? Which of these are compatible with our view? None of them. Uh, so even the thesis that any plurality of at most two objects is always collected as a unique set is incompatible with the distinctive package the third way absolutist endorses, namely this idea that the, the old domain is comprehensive in the new sense of comprehensive and the idea that any old sets get collected as new sets. Those two theses are enough the assumptions the, the third way absolutist makes are enough in the logic I sketched to refute the, the weakest of these collectability theses. Um, and a fortiori then also enough to uh, refute the other three. So it seems, that seems quite a heavy price to pay. So if we're a third way absolutist, we have to reject standard set theory and actually to reject quite weak sub-theories of standard set theory. So let me just, uh, in closing, briefly mention a response uh, the third-way absolutist might make. So we've got to, if we're a third-way absolutist, give up at least one axiom of standard set theory. Um, indeed, it's got to be one of extensionality, pairing, or empty set. It seems to me the only candidate to give up there is the pairing axiom. The idea that for any pair of at most two objects, A and B, those are the elements of some set. And I suppose the reason this causes trouble for third-way absolutists is that if you're a third-way absolutist, all of the new sets are already in the range of your quantifiers. They already lurk amongst the old your elements. And this goes to show that the pairing axiom, which allows us to form a singleton of any item at all, sets up an injective mapping from new sets to old sets. Because given any new set, it's already in our domain. Pairing says it's got to have a singleton amongst the old sets. So we've got this, therefore, injection from new sets to old and that goes to show that there can't be any more 
new sets and old sets because every new set is uniquely correlated with its old singleton. On the other hand, if we're assuming with the third-way absolutist that old sets get collected as new ones, uh, in the plural logic, you can run a version of Cantor's diagonal argument to show that there's got to be strictly more new sets than there were old ones. And I suppose a, a response you might make is, well, let's not have pairing unrestricted. <coughs> let's try and restrict pairing so we can't form singletons of future sets. And so let's restrict ourselves to just some available objects, say, and provided we're sufficiently restricted about which objects count as available, we can still have a pairing principle. And I just want to highlight uh, one difficulty of going this way. And the difficulty is I think it undermines some of the applications of pairing, and especially some of the applications of pairing that you might want to appeal to if you're an absolutist. So one application of pairing is to encode ordered pairs. Um, and Kuratowski came up with the, the now standard way for encoding ordered pairs. And if you've got unrestricted pairing and therefore can form also an ordered pair of any two items, that's going to be useful for the absolutist when it comes to encoding arbitrary extensions. So suppose now we're doing natural language semantics as an absolutist. We can't rely on set extensions because there aren't always the sets we need but we might instead appeal to plural resources. And so in the case of the identity predicate, for example, we can encode its extension as, loosely speaking, the plurality of all pairs where both coordinates are the same thing. If we're a third-way absolutist, though, we can't do that. And it's not for want of pluralities, but it's for want of pairs. Because there's no longer a pairing function available on the entire absolutely comprehensive domain. And so we don't have pairs of unavailable items, and that leaves the question, well, how then should we encode the extension of the identity predicate when it's interpreted over an absolutely comprehensive domain, not as a set, nor as a plurality of pairs? So that brings us then to, to the trade-off I've been trying to get to. The absolutist and relativist trade-off generality against collectability. The third way view, I suggested, initially looked like it might do quite well on both those counts. But in this last section, I've, I've suggested that, in fact, it does badly when it comes to restricted quantifiers. And it also does badly when it comes to collectability when we consider your elements in addition to sets. Thank you very much.